Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome in for another episode of Let's Hear It. In the chilly fall weather, we come together again to hear another one of these great guests that Eric has conjured from the ether. Eric, how you doing? Like you, I'm shivering in my shoes. <laughs> Although I am told that Buffalo, New York is under five or six feet of snow right now, so I should just shut the hell up. Right. Uh, and <laughs> but we won't. We'll just complain about the weather, but we won't. We'll just complain. And I am not sure that I conjured Ken Wine, the chief communications officer and senior vice president of external affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art out of the ether. But I think he always existed. And yet, for me, he is evanescent. How's that? Oh, man. Got it. Ken Wine is an amazing guy, and he has, to my mind, one of the hardest communications jobs I can think of. What he does is no less than stupefying to me. This was a great conversation in our discussion about that's going to take a lot of different directions. And once again, Ken, so gracious and, and um, generous to come on to the podcast. So this is Ken Wine, the Chief Communications Officer and Vice President for External Affairs for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yes, indeed. That one, yes. That one. And, uh, so if, if folks are, are listening and like, eh, I'm, I'm going to skip this one. We just wanted to hear our fabulous introduction. I would say two <laughs> things. First, Ken is sitting at the at the at this central thing of culture, provenance, sociology, art, history, communications, marketing, all of these things. And he is dealing with some very high level folks. And so that's one. And the second thing is that if you stay around to listen to to Kirk's and my blah, blah at the end, I will let you in <laughs> on a fantastic secret that Ken couldn't tell me when we recorded this and that you don't Ooh. even know, Kirk. So there you go. There's okay. my teaser for listening and then waiting till the end to have us uh, chat about it. Secrets ahead. Well, this is Ken Wine on Let's Hear It. We'll, we'll listen to Ken and then we'll come back. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Ken Wine, the Chief Communications Officer and Senior Vice President of External Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Ken, I can't wait. I cannot wait to have this conversation because you have, you stick a quarter in you and 99 stories come out. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, that's uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hope you brought brought a lot a load of quarters because I'm happy to talk, <laughs> and I particularly appreciate you know your audience of uh, communications professionals. Well, we're gonna hear and more. From, <laughs> we are gonna hear from the master. I, you know, if you ask me, your job is a variation on on Dickens. It's the best of jobs and the worst of jobs. I mean, you get to hobnob at the costume gala if you like, 
maybe not. You get to, and then you're dealing with every kind of potential cultural touchstoney thing that we have, whether it's cultural appropriation or the provenance of your collection and maybe taking the names of some donors off of some collections. It's so, I mean, I guess the first question is, am I right? Is it the best of jobs? It's the worst of jobs? It's, I, I so appreciate the way you position that because that's kind of the way I think about it. And, you know, you meet people who aren't in the communications or cultural world and they'll either see it really simplistically like, oh, it must be just joy, you know, one benefit after another, or it must be just, you know, utter hell every day. And the truth is, like most complicated jobs, it's both with the medium. The way I say it is everything at the Met is kind of supersized. So we happen to have a large external affairs department. We have about 30 people. And broadly, what I say is my team gets to do the really fun, positive things. We have 40 special exhibitions a year covering everything from the 17 curatorial departments. So this very month, it goes from Mayan art to Cubism art to the Tudors and all the glory of that. The bad news is my team gets to do that. So they get to do the fun, create the press conferences, talk to the critics, walk around with the living artists. I get the tougher institutional work. And, and to your point, what's so exhilarating and often scary about being in a place like the Met is there are only a handful of so-called encyclopedic art museums around the world. And the Met is the only one in the United States. I'd say our peers are the Prado and the Louvre and the British Museum. But we are a particularly American institution, and we really are a metaphor for New York, America, capitalism, American philanthropy. So all the challenges and opportunities of the world land up on our doorstep, land on our doorstep. So I'll just say one more thing. You know, this. This very week, there are protesters who want to bring attention to the death of the murder of the woman in Iran and a feminist amazing protest there. And there was a protest on the steps of the Met. Why exactly is that? We're not allied with the Iranian regime, but we are a large target. Of course, we've seen the climate activists' horrible actions overseas. That thankfully has not hit the Met. That is defacing pieces. But the point is, whether it's the Sackler name or opioid or cultural property, it's all arrives at the doorstep of the world's largest art museum. And for the person who's responsible for helping to shape the image, to respond to the press, to help, I don't know, square this that circle, that the, let's just say the matter flows as gravity does downhill onto your head. If I'm not, <laughs> as you say, well, your team gets to do the fun stuff and you have to try to make sense and interpret and if not explain, at least contextualize this huge, as you say, the metaphor for American everything. <laughs> Did you know that that's what you were signing up for? It's funny. When I, so I've spent my career, I'm trained as a community organizer and lawyer and then did a shift over into communications and basically spent my career in nonprofit communications, leading communications groups. And my prior post was at the New York Public Library. And I remember saying to my wife, wow, the three positions seem to be opening up soon to run 
comms at the at the Whitney and MoMA and the Met. I said to my wife, I really want one of those. And sure enough, for whatever set of reasons, the Met called and, and it worked out. I now look back and think, I probably couldn't have even gotten the jobs at Whitney or MoMA because they would have wanted somebody who really knows something about contemporary modern, modern contemporary art. I have never taken an art history class. I don't, I've come to, I, I love art. We raised our children in the art museums of New York City. I love public institutions and a civic discourse. And that's the way I presented myself in this process. So I knew that I was going to have the incredible privilege of being at a large institution that was iconic in New York. I really don't think I fully grasped its cultural import. And, you know, the New York, I thought, oh, the New York Public Library and, and the Met Museum, they're both buildings about 150 year old, years old, made, made of marble on Fifth Avenue, happen to be about the same budget, happen to be about the same size. That's actually where the similarities end. <laughs> the Met drives the entire museum and art field. And culturally, particularly in the fashion world as well. It just has an extra weight that I don't think I fully appreciated, but that's okay. It's been fun to embrace it. Well, this is actually a, a is good news for the comms people out there because <laughs> it's amazing what kind of access you get and the kind of jobs that you could get if you have the ability to make sense of things. You don't have to be an art historian or an expert in art to to do your job because your job is a lot more than that and it is a it is about trying to navigate the <laughs> incredibly dense and complicated world of communications but politics and messaging and as it happens marketing <laughs> so much of what you're doing is trying to sell people on on this great institution on on, on the one hand and on the other hand it's this incredibly complex mix of of politics and culture and history and civic engagement. What tra so you say you're a, you started as a lawyer? Is, do you think you're drawing on your legal? Should I should I go out and get a legal? <laughs> how are how are you pulling together all the strands of your life to be able to do this kind of job, which sounds like like the the West Wing, an episode of the West Wing. I know my uh, my boss often says we need to make a sitcom and we'll call it the museum. And you know every three hours some fun problem walks in the door. I'd say a couple things. I went to law school hoping to fall in love with the law, and I did a variety of things in law school and shortly thereafter, and and never did successfully fall in love with the law. Yet having a legal degree enables me to, shall we say, engage with the lawyers internally. And that's actually a <laughs> and the, skill. The that word engage, is... if, if, if people could see you, the, the, your hair stood up on end and you made air quotes and you did other things. I can only imagine what that engagement is like. And it's about everything. And they, look, the lawyers mean well. Their job is to keep us, you know, out, out of trouble with law enforcement and other, but they're we often have a conversation about, well, wait a minute, is this a legal objection or a policy objection? The topic of cultural property is, is a perfect one by which we mean, okay, the incredible thing about a big place like the Met is we have a collection of 1.5 million pieces of art. They all came from somewhere. And our ambition is to 
collect being to be an encyclopedic museum of art we collect art across 5000 years of human creativity the goalposts are moving very fast on what is appropriate and legal but those goalposts those are two sets of goalposts what is culturally appropriate and what is legal particularly in the social justice movement that we're in so that means we're going to have real conversations between our legal department and our communications team and we're both doing our jobs again they want to keep us so we're not you know um, running into trouble downtown and i want to protect our brand and our in our reputation and not just for narrow reasons but because we want to have i we want to have big loan shows like we're opening up next week a fabulous show if i may have an advertisement for lives of the gods first review in over a decade of mayan art which will have loans that have never been to the united states from mexico and guatemala to have loan shows like that you have to have a really strong international re reputation so law and policy inter intersect in that regard but i'd say to the broader thing you were raising is wait a minute why are they hiring a non-art guy for an art museum and is that a good or a bad thing and i would say us communications people would say in no industry is it healthy to only have people who know that industry because i mean here at the met we have 17 curatorial departments in a prior era our leadership decades ago would say we don't have one museum we have 17 museums that's the great thing about the Met is you can enjoy 17 different museums. Well, guess what? Today, we actually think our best asset is not to have 17 museums, but to integrate those museums, to have intense outreach so that the contemporary art piece is speaking to the Egyptian piece, is speaking to the African piece. That requires a different set of skills and a different set of outreach and a different conversation. So, of course, you want to refresh that. I've always said that the whenever I hire somebody or whenever I've been putting myself forward for a job, the stuff that I don't know I can learn, but the stuff that I have can't be taught. And and I think that the kind of skills that you need to navigate that crazy world, besides having a brain that fires in different ways than humans, than most humans, it is those those many of those things can't be taught. That and then you can learn, obviously you can learn the history, you can learn about the way that these about the way the museum runs but you you certainly can't teach somebody to not lose their mind when a reporter calls you at midnight with some kind of crisis at the same time that you're trying that you have an opening the next day and how, how do you you must be one of those kind of walk and talk west wing characters in that you can you know fight you can respond to six different things at a time and you can juggle 11 plates is that your is that your personality uh, or do when you go home, do you just like, line things up in a neat little row? More <laughs> than it was. No, I have many, many weaknesses, but I happen to be a a very strong compartmentalizer. So I can go for a run and take a break and send four emails during the run and then come back. So I can kind of switch back and forth like that. I'm also a firm believer that this little phone in my hand is a liberator. I mean, I know all the ailments and I've raised kids and faced, you know, making sure they're not living their digital lives. But, 
you know, I coached Little League Baseball for 10 years on the sideline and had jobs that had a lot of crisis communications, and I couldn't have done it with without a phone. And, you know, the, the, the liberation that comes to that. But I also happen to be a stimulation junkie, and that's kind of what I enjoy most. The, the other thing about these jobs, and I was very clear these last couple of times I've, you know, these last two jobs, to say, look, if you want a communications person who is going to be, and there are many institutions that need this or want this, who is going to just kind of take care of the institution um, in, frankly, a kind of conservative, small-c conservative way, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested, like, I remember a moment, to your point about bringing new skills, at the Met, appropriately, we're worried about security and how we bring art in the building and whatnot, and there had always been this rule we will never show behind the scenes how art is unpacked or hung up. But sure enough, we had this first ever like 80 foot high Mexican mural that was going to be hung up in one of our galleries. So I had the temerity, this is my first year-ish, to say, perfect, let's show the unveiling of it. And long conversations with our friend in security in the registrar's office. And my point was, we live in an era with, you know, three full-time food shows on television. People don't want to know just what's happening in the restaurant. They want to know what's happening in the kitchen. And they want to know what's happening at the Met behind the scenes. And it's not going to, we're not going to put anyone in danger to show the art coming out of the crates. We're not showing when it comes in the building. And sure enough, that was a front page Wall Street Journal piece. So the point is, and this is not rocket science. Your point is correct. You need to bring people from different fields into other fields and hope that they can embrace the mission and apply those skills. Well, I am looking forward to a few more of those behind the scenes stories in the second part of the show. We're going to take a quick break and be back with Ken Wine of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Ken Wine, the Chief Communications Officer and Senior Vice President of External Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Ken, you were just telling us. Eric, Eric, again, I got to tell you, you've asked for Met Gala tickets three times, and I'm doing <laughs> the best I can. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is that the, is that the number one question you get, you get asked? Do, do, if, like if you're wearing a Met pin or carrying a Met bag walking down the street, do people ask you for gala tickets? I get a lot of a lot of fun requests, and I have a lot of fun answering. Like, why didn't you reply? I sent it to your Gmail. Did it did it hit spam? So no, we we do get a lot of questions. You're the handsomest man in New York once a year, correct? <laughs> like the handsomest, funniest, most intelligent. Exactly. People buy people buying me drinks. But to be clear, that is a just from a communications perspective, it's a really fun. Obviously, it's a fun night, but it's a fun conversation about is it good for the brand? Is it good for the institution? What does it mean for us culturally, internally? As you can imagine, our partners at Condé Nast do an incredible job helping us put this event on. But 
it's the we are we are closed only three days a year. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's fourth day is the the day of the Met Gala because it is such a large operation and we have to prepare for it. And that also does a lot of things culturally. Uh, I'm a huge fan of employee communications. What does that mean to the staff? We have to say, please step aside. This major thing is happening. And also we're giving such a, sh a bright light on the Costume Institute part of our portfolio. As a communications person who is just hungry for eyeballs and media impressions, I would suggest it's an incredible thing for art for New York and for the Met. But as you can imagine, reasonable people disagree with that. <laughs> and I'm sure there are no egos involved with the costume gala, right? There's no, because celebrities are really easy to deal with. And that sounds like your job is just duck soup on, a, on right around that time. It, it is. Am I wrong? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, complex personalities, but look, again, at the end of the day, these are people who are generously giving us, you know, part of their individual fame brand and devoting it to the Met. They don't, you know, Lady Gaga, she doesn't have to be a co-host of the Met Gala, but, you know, she does this unbelievable presentation for us up and down the red carpet on the occasion of our camp show. And that's all a gift to the Met, which at the end of the day is a nonprofit bringing art to people and people to art. Now, of course, when you see a front page story in the New York Post, it doesn't, it may not, that might not be one's first impression. The first impression is what is Lady Gaga wearing? And that's our obligation is to take the incredible energy from the gala and focus that on the art and the institution. And we're sometimes successful and sometimes not. All right. I'm going to deconstruct that answer someday as a as a, a <laughs> an object lesson on how to answer a difficult question. <laughs> so good, well, good on you. What I I would say that that some of the behind the scenes things that you can talk about must be fascinating. For example, I think you mentioned to me once that these exhibitions take sometimes up to a, a decade to to create. So you are in the and at, you are engaged in various stages along the way on any number of exhibitions that have, a, as you say, incredible breadth of time and culture and all that stuff. That sounds like, talk about juggling plates, but that sounds like an incredible opportunity, as you say, to, to create a story that runs through the entire museum. Can you just talk a little bit about this exhibition development process and how you manage all of that. Sure. It's super interesting because at a, at a broad level, there's a tension within the museum, our museum, because there are some museums that only do special exhibitions, and there's some museums that only have collection areas, and we have both. And if I had the blessing of being in Paris tomorrow, I would go to the Louvre, regardless of what their exhibitions are. So when I arrived at the Met about six-ish years ago, I did an audit of how are we promoting our exhibitions? How are we using our marketing budget rather and PR and all of that? And the answer was 95% was on exhibitions. Now, on one hand, that makes great sense because to your point, yes, curators can work from three to 10 years in gestating a show. 
And when that Michelangelo show or that guitar show opens, they want the building to sing for them. And that's our one opportunity to get guitar aficionados one time in 10 years in the door to talk about that. On the other hand, again, if I was in Paris tomorrow, should that should we be promoting the museum experience or the or wait to just if we promote the museum experience and they'll get in the door, then we can nudge them to go see guitars or Michelangelo. So that's the fun, fun, fun tension. But it is an incredible privilege to work with these curators who literally, I mean, if you're a Greek and Roman curator, to pick that one area, you'll spend, I don't know, the first decade or two of your career making it to the Met Museum. And now you're one of six Greek and Roman curators at the Met. You've got 20, 30 years left to produce, you're only going to have about three shows your entire career. And now your moment is coming. And every loan matters. How do you navigate? Are there the Greek government going to give it to us? What about that fancy donor who has an apartment? I heard they have an amazing statue in their bathroom. Like, how do you navigate? Get that all in here. And then, and this is the, the thing that really does bum me out is I've never been in a comms job. Usually the comms person runs around and says to the program people, give me content, give me content. We have too darn much content. We literally, <laughs> we literally, you know, our friends at modern art museums in town that everybody knows and love, they have six big shows a year. That's great. But we have 43. <laughs> so I can't call the New York Times every single week. Actually, a half hour ago, I just sent an email to the New York Times editor saying, Hey, somebody coming back to see the Cubism show again? Oh, and by the way, in three weeks, the Mayan show opens up. How many times can we do that? So we have to make some sequencing and some priority judgment calls, which is hard. And also, the last thing I'd say is my experience as a civilian in museums isn't necessarily driven by that one so-called blockbuster show that I saw. It could be about one piece so it's really unfair how we make these marketing decisions. Should we do it because the big Michelangelo show or this very week, we got this amazing loan from Los Angeles of an African-American artist who has done a contemporary depiction of Washington Cross the Delaware. And for the first time in history, it's adjacent to Washington Cross the Delaware. But instead of George Washington in the boat, it's George Washington Carver in the boat. So this is one piece that I found out about last week. If we were a normal <laughs> museum, that would be a huge banner on the outside. So making those decisions and now, okay, you can imagine what are the 17 things I want to do to promote this moment? I want to get, you know, we have Black History coming out in February. I want to get, you know, city leaders to see it. But what about that Mayan show coming up in two weeks? So these are all kind of fun things one has to juggle. I can't imagine that. Not only that, but so you've got a curator who gets three shows in their in their lifetime at the Met, and it's competing with 42 others, and they all want you to promote their thing because <laughs> life is short. I, I can't imagine the pressure that must be for you and for them and, and to try and weave this together into one institution because, as you say, like that, that one fact like blows my head. <laughs> you can work at the Met oh, and get three the other shows. Thing the other thing to layer on it, and we don't have it as bad as some of your amazing listeners, for whatever wonderful set of reasons, there still is a little arts media world. So there's art newspaper and hyperallergic, which is a, a newish arrival, which is amazing, and, and Artnet and others. 
But let's be clear, the amount of lines of print is smaller. You know, the Cleveland Plain Dealer used to send an art critic to Met openings. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, wow. I'm guessing, doesn't have an art critic anymore. So we're competing for a much, obviously, smaller space in the so-called traditional media. So we have to use all these new channels and figure out other ways. And the other thing is have a conversation with our curators. The other cultural thing that we have that's super intense internally is that Greek and Roman curator, to, to return to him and her, they'll be here for 30 years, but the comms people, the HR people, the finance people, we're cycling in and out. And part of our conversation is, guess what? The review in New York Newsday, A, doesn't exist anymore, and B, if it did exist, doesn't matter. What we need to do, believe it or not, is to do a TikTok about <laughs> your, I mean, you laugh, but that's literally the conversation that our, not to put it on age, but you know, our 20-something <laughs> new social media producer is having with our north of 60 Greek right. and Roman curator. <laughs> the curator to set up his phone and do a little dance. In front of his, his ex exhibition. <laughs> I won't get it right, but at the last Met Gala, we Vogue did this unbelievably cool thing where they had basically took our Greek and Roman pieces and then superimposed a celebrity who was shot on those pieces. So one, I think, was Beyonce. And people came in for weeks after saying, I need to see the Beyonce Greek and Roman piece, which doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> What's the best, what was the best day you've ever had in this job? Oh, that's a great question. I'm having the best little marketing run of my life right now, which is, we happen to be late on, open late on Friday and Saturday nights, and we've been late, open late for years. And it's always frustrated me that we weren't well enough attended on those nights, just it was a secret. And uh, my wife and I always entertain on that night and bring friends and our friends are like, this is amazing. Thanks for the treats. Like, actually, anybody can do this. It's pay as you wish. After Omicron somewhat receded in January, I did this thing. I said, I've had it. You know, forget. I want to go all in on promoting the experience, not the exhibition. We're calling it date night at the Met. And it's we don't need any art. The programming is buy one, get one free drinks. And we have a jazz quartet. So that night, uh, the, the night we kicked it off, we doubled the tenants the first night, and it's been doubled and more ever since. Younger audience, profoundly more diverse audience, profoundly lower household income. And so just getting that, we I get an hourly email of what the attendance looks like, which is kind of like the stock ticker. You don't want to look at it, but you do. <laughs> Watching those come in, and seeing, I, I talked to our volunteers. We have 1,200 volunteers in the museum. Many of them are senior citizens who are, this is a you know second, third kind of career thing. I talked them into doing these things. I said, look, I don't want a formal walk, tour, because who knows if you're on a date, if you want a tour. Let's call it a gallery chat. So people would come and visit a gallery. We'd say, oh, in these three places you can go visit. So these kind of septuagenarian docents we're giving gallery chats to these, you know, young couples and the docents are over the moon about the experience. So the whole thing has been really invigorating. And, and I try to just take moments like that. And I encourage anybody listening to this is when you have a big complicated job, you better have a passion project to keep you going. So 
those moments are the counter to getting that call about, you know, a tough cultural property issue or another COVID protocol or, you know, three egos bent out of shape about something. Or someone throws soup on a plane, on a painting. God, thank God that has never God happened forbid. to our, our insurance yet. Yeah. I, so the idea that you, you get an, an hourly email about how many people are at the Met seems like a very interesting job. Just that. It's interesting. Let me ask. I can ask the interviewer. Do you think bad weather helps or hurts? Oh. Oh, I I don't have any idea. I intellect sort of. I intellectually, I'd say it helps. But but on the other hand, that's probably why I'm wrong. Yeah, it's it's kind of in the middle. It's an unfair question. Horrible downpour. Nothing. No one's going to come. You want kind of modestly bad weather. And, you know, I can, I now like try to treat my, like, okay, four o'clock on a Thursday, if I happen to not be in town, four o'clock on a, on a Saturday, 60 degrees, how many people, you know, is it, is it 1500 or 2200 on for that one hour? So eventually you can kind of guess. (laughs) You get to play a lot of funny little intellectual games with with attendance and weather and everything else I can imagine. And one scary thing for all of us in the tourism industry is people's habits are changing. What I say is, you know, MoMA, Whitney, Guggenheim, they are our friends. Our enemy is Netflix and your pajamas. Getting people out of their house, particularly when they don't have to go to Manhattan anymore for that job, that is our biggest challenge. So finding any way we can get people out whether it's community or a show or a free drink, we really need to do it. Well, I, <laughs> I really, I, I love the Met. I love you, Ken. You're just one of the most generous and, as it happens, entertaining folks I know in this business. And I've learned so much from you over the years, and I think that our listeners can learn so much from you about how you, you have taken this job and made it even more interesting than it probably was when you got there. The idea that you could have the opportunity around programming, you know, in a sense, you've become curator of, of sorts. Shh. Don't tell the curators. <laughs> That's okay. They're not listening. They'll never <laughs> listen. <laughs> but the idea that you can use communications and your own marketing savvy to shape an institution, I think is really important because it, it, it is so central to what we all do at our, at our jobs is to is to help build a relationship between our organization and our various constituencies, audiences, and others. And and I think that what you've done there has is a really great example of it. And I've just so much appreciated what you've been doing over over the years. And it's just so much fun to talk to you, Ken Wine. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. And we are back. Okay, so I'm not going to go straight to the secret. We're not going to spoil the secret immediately. No. I have to know, how do you know, Ken? This is, we've had a lot of great guests on this podcast. This was a total flex. This is such a flex. What's I'm a, like, oh my gosh, this is- What's a flex? Are you hanging coolest... out with young people younger than yourselves? What this is This is the coolest job, the coolest person, one of the greatest cities in the world. You know, when you say that my, uh, my comparison group is the Prado- <laughs> This is rare air. This is rare air. So how do you know Ken? How do you know Ken? Ken and I were on the board of the Communications Network 
together. And oh. Ken proved to be the most irreverent, witty, articulate, creative, and just fun board member and really kind of human that I've ever had the good fortune to encounter. He is such a fun guy. Anytime anytime I go to New York, I call him up and he'd walk walk me through the galleries and he would show me like, here's this poster. I spent <laughs> two years dealing with the curator on this poster to get because they wanted to, you know, so here's a guy. <laughs> he goes from you know, the costume gala and managing mm. the Sackler name to the minutiae of making sure that the poster was right because we wanted to be able to promote and market this e exhibition in the right yeah. way that would do the things that we wanted to do for it. So, like, that's the level of detail he gets into. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. And then I'll tell you all the backstories. And I'm like, oh, this is unbelievable. Just the bee's knees that Ken Wine. Well, you you opened up and said, so is this the best and the worst job at the same time? It. I was thinking this is such a be careful what you wish for. You might just get it kind of a job, right? Yes. I mean, what a huge job. And so now I will get, I will tell you the thing that I didn't tell Please. you in in the intro, is that what Ken couldn't tell me when we were recording this episode was that the the Secret Service had just called. Oh, my. And the president of the United States of America, him, wanted to come to the memorial service for Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's father, oh, wow. who's a donor to the museum. And I think there's a Blinken wing. He wanted to, the president wanted to come to the memorial service. And so it was, of course, super duper hush hush top secret. So he couldn't tell me this. He told me that after, afterwards. So, but that's what he was, his own brain was spinning about how are we going to manage this oh, event with the president? And it was not on the president's calendar. So it was something he was just going to dip into, attend, and leave. Of course, it made the news afterwards. But that's the level of complexity that he has to deal with on on any given day. He has no idea if, if the president is going to want to show up at his office. Well, so this is the personality part. And you talked about that in terms of the Met Gala and how they, you know, how that 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 connects with the content of what the Met is putting forward in terms of its different exhibits. But you said he said something almost in passing, I felt, that put such a rich question on the table. So he talked about the goalposts for what is culturally and legally appropriate to share or do. Yeah. And and I was thinking, oh my goodness, Eric has taken us at a very interesting time, right smack dab into the middle of a conversation about what is free speech <laughs> with one of the people that's responsible for integrating what we think of that meaning and sharing it in the most simultaneously persuasive, compelling, and also sensitive way possible. Ken is doing Nobel Prize level <laughs> thinking every day about how to about how to balance this. So sure. so I have a question for you, Eric oh. Brown. What does free speech mean when it comes to an institution like the Met? Ugh. That's an interesting that's a very interesting question. Maybe well, Ken was the Ken's the lawyer, so he he'd have a legal definition. But I also think that we've begun to incorporate a social definition of free speech is my my right to what is it? I can't remember exactly what it is, but like I, my right to use my hand until it hits you in the face, you know. It's it's that <laughs> yeah. it, free speech isn't absolute. 
and free speech affects other people. So on the one hand, let's just say, it is really important for people to be able to articulate their feelings around cultural ownership and appropriation. So it is long past time where you can go into somebody else's country, take all their stuff and put it on your wall and say, oh, I got right. it. That's okay. Look what I found. That's right. And so it's, <laughs> it's kind of, and, and this is art that more people can see. And so therefore there's some kind of um, openness about that. That's what, that was mm -hmm. the argument for why the British Museum could, could keep the Elgin, the so-called Elgin marbles, which are the friezes that are at the top of the, um, in, in the Acropolis in, in, uh, in Athens at the Parthenon. And and keep it because they said oh it was going to deteriorate over there so this gives it gives more access to more people and so on uh, and of course people are realizing that that's kind of crap now mm -hmm. so that's on the one hand this this notion that we have to begin to return artifacts that were acquired under hazy circumstances that's one to that somebody doesn't have the right to put their name on your gallery if maybe they did bad things. That's two. Mm, and then the third mm. is that nobody has the right to throw soup on your painting. That's three. <laughs> and if people want, you know, free speech stops where the where the soup hits the painting. So yeah. and, and so that's the other part that they're trying to to deal with because people understand the context of great art and that you will your message will get out if you situate yourself next to it and that it gives you the opportunity it gives you a platform but what it doesn't give you i think and i think ken would probably agree with me is the right to throw soup at it yeah and right. so so there are all these things that that these institutions because they are touchstones for thought and beauty and how societies function. There, he, there are these incredible historical places for you know teaching of history that it all comes together at the Met. And totally, you know, yeah. like, and he said people were protesting about the Iranian uh, about what was happening in Iran at the Met. And he's like, we don't have any Iranian. You know, this that was not our area, but it's the Met, and yeah. it's it's the place where people go to express themselves. And he says like to bring people to the art and art to the people which I think is a really cool way of thinking about your job. So, wow, wow, what a what a great and crazy and interesting job. And then, of course, he's also checking how many people are coming to the turnstiles every hour on the hour. <laughs> well, that was amazing, too, getting that email. So, right, this notion that he surfaced in such a profound way, the notion of a museum being backward-looking is such the wrong way to think about it, right? This the, the Met is the place where our culture aggressively revisits itself daily right like like yeah. like the like these exhibitions how they're curated we're bringing into context all of the converse, the cutting edge conversations about how we're viewing ourselves today and that that context is shifting day by day and so here you've got this job of being in the, at the communication centerpiece of all that and how challenging that is it's funny so he talked about he's in having this great moment where he rolled out the date concept yeah, yeah, date night and it's, at the and it's Met. I love it. date night at the Met. And it made me think, and there, there, I wonder if there's a way to do this because this notion that the Met is a great platform to surface protest. I wonder if there would be a way to authentically with the right kind of um, respect to create 
protest night at the Met, right? <laughs> to actually say, this is part of our job is to create a platform for protests. So let's let's curate, you know, let's curate what protests could look like and let's actually extend that as part of our, because, you know, back to that notion about what is free speech and that notion of like, what is culturally and legally appropriate to do, that seems so challenging because part of me thinks, well, okay, you have the whole, whole question of, what can you even display? You know, what are the terms of of how you came into position possession of what you're curating and all the context that has shifted around that? But then how you introduce people to parts of our history that are ugly, horrible, awful, you know, what lens, what filter do you put on that? Do you do you just intentionally challenge our perceptions by saying, actually back in the you know, when this was reality? Nobody thought anything about it, you know, or do you put our own, you know, kind of lens around what, how we view it today? It, that just, and so, so this is the other thing he was talking about. These curators may do three shows in their entire career. So you're, you're our arts person. This is like Broadway meets, I don't know what Oscar night meets, like, like it's the most rarefied air for creativity, maybe on the planet. Right. Except for that, two other institutions. I don't know. The job of curating one of these exhibitions that takes a decade. I just it's beyond comprehension to me how you would how you would actually pull that off. OK, first, I got to get back to your protest night at the Met. I think yeah. Ken is going to come to your house and throw soup at it yeah. for suggesting that. I will, I will put a picture of myself on my fence and he could just deface my picture with soup. <laughs> and he's going right. to protest you. But either that or you could you could hold protest at uh, night at the Met at their annex in Staten Island. Yeah, right. <laughs> Please come to Staten Island. Take the ferry. Right. Have a date. Right. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's a legitimate question about where did the art come from? Is it is it kosher to have it? What do you do with it? Do you borrow it? Do you give it back? Do you, you know, all that kind of stuff? I think that those are very important questions. And then this notion that the um, that they're taking the you know the Sackler name off of the Sackler wing, which is is quite interesting because again, if the organization is associated with activities that that the Met doesn't approve of or, or at, uh, as finally kind of de 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 disclaimed. That's that's a statement in itself. So which gets back to my other point that I made with Ken kind of vaguely at the end, which is that you're using communications to program the experience and kind of shape the conversation. I think that's exactly true without a, an extremely deft. I mean, like a really, really deft communications person at a museum like that, you can cause all kinds of problems. You can have the wrong kinds of conversations and you can and the work um, suffers as a result of it. So that's that's where all you communications folks out there, you have the opportunity to shape your organizations, whether it's an art museum or or a or environmental organization, or a health organ, or anything, be yeah. because of how people relate and and talk about the work that you're doing, you have such an important role in shaping that. And I think that's the genius of that's the genius of our field, honestly. And yeah. that's why it's so cool to see what he's been able to do in, in a relatively short time. But oh, and then well, the last sorry, the last thing, this notion that there are you have one show every 10 years and there are 43 mm. exhibitions going oh on in goodness. a given year and everybody yeah. wants you to focus on their thing. That feels like one of those weird kind of, I don't know, 
existential Rubik's cube Escher diagrammy mind benders. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, um, you talk about is I, I always love it when you get into the background, you know, what brought you into this field and, and his background as a community organizer and a lawyer, what an interesting set of skills to bring to this task that he's at the center of. But I did love that express when you talked about the 43 shows and he said, how many organizations might share this sensibility? We have too much content. <laughs> we cannot call the New York Times every other week. And I'm sure even today he gets, you know, the door knocking, the phone ringing. Hey, you know, actually, what? how are we pitching this? How are we positioning this? And he's starting to talk about, you know, we actually want to emphasize the experience as opposed to maybe particular exhibits. But what a great expression of this. And, you know, it, it kind of actually broke my heart a little bit when you taught when he talked about the Cleveland plane dealer used to send a reporter to cover right. you know, like openings and they would have these traditional old school mainstream outlets from all over the country. Could you imagine that journalist getting however they get to New York, doing that, covering that, coming back, that being in the Cleveland plane dealer, people are starting to plan trips and travel around that. And what does he say? He says New York Newsday doesn't matter. TikTok matters. <laughs> yeah, like, I just had conjured up these images of these curators, you know, their bow ties and their suspenders doing like a little TikTok dance. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so we get to your 20 minute moment, the classic moment where Eric really goes there. And so first we get the discussion about date night at the Met, which is again, good for you, Ken, like just genius, you know, let's think about ways to refresh how we're doing the work. And then he offers these two little tidbits that I think are actually like things we should think about in our lives. So number one, you need to have a key passion project to keep going. And wow, did that land for me? You know, you can do all these different things, but what's the passion project? What's the thing that's really connecting to you to the world? You know what's not I my love? passion project? <laughs> what? The podcast. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. It's great. <laughs> Come on. You just had a great conversation with Ken. It's got to be your I'm passion just project. Kidding. It's a passion project. I made you so pin then, the mic though, so that was good. Okay, so the, the this is this is this is the great philosophical statement of all time. What is it best? Do you want good weather or bad weather? And I, it's like I was like, "Oh wow, all communications professionals, we want this. We want moderately bad weather." Like that, that's that's, That's when it works best for us. Vague gloom not... is excellent for business. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it's so the... it's true. When people have uh, when clients or colleagues or whomever, when they say, oh, my God, we have this huge crisis at work, my response to them is, well, you're the comms person. That's good for business. <laughs> like, yeah, right, exactly. This is what they pay you to Don't... do, my friend. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The last thing before we go, and again, Eric, this is so great. And Ken, thank you so much for coming to Let's Hear It and talk, talking about your work. But- you know, it was really interesting, the last thing that Ken talked about as their primary com competition is people in their pajamas in front of Netflix yeah. and not wanting to leave their houses. And and it just struck me, again, back to this notion of the Mets where this sort of social, cultural conversation is coming together and trying to provide the most inclusive, most inviting, most accommodating space for people of all sensibilities to come together and just see each other and share the experience of, of, of seeing whatever's to be seen real time. This project that Ken is involved with to get people out of their houses and into a positive conversation around culture, 
this gets me back to what I wish our headlines were dominated by, right? I wish I was seeing daily reminders of what Ken is doing at the Met rather than the stuff I'm reading about some of our social media giants and what they happen to be doing, you know, blocks from where you live, right? I mean, but- Are you telling me they're doing bad things, I'm Kirk? telling you they're doing disheartening <laughs> things. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you it's, Good it's, it's Lord. a little bit soul crushing. And yet here's Ken, here's Ken just doing this work day after day of building this place where people can come and have positive experiences. And, and man, I mean, this is actually the most vital kind of work you could possibly be doing. So it's an interesting observation too, in the midst of this whole social media thing and how it's playing itself out that these opportunities to come back together, to gather in person and be part of something positive. It's just some of the most important work I think we can do. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, you're right. You're, yes. And I'm, of course, very flip about Twitter and social media and all that other stuff. But here is a man who is going to give you two-for-one drinks and hire a jazz <laughs> combo so that you can take in great art and pay what you want. <laughs> That's his answer to the disconnection and the lack of, uh, yeah. you know, experience that we're supposed to be having uh, as compared to the crazy people yeah. out there who are doing whatever they can to drive us apart to to let us fight so that's like that's a good job but it's also what well, you know that's some real creativity yeah. I, so i totally agree we have to find and I, I guess again i always try and come away with a lesson that we can all um, take from our any guest, which is that if you're in a communications position, you have the opportunity to apply that level of creativity to your job, no matter what it is or what issue you're working Absolutely. on. And that's that's the lesson I take away from Ken, first and foremost. Absolutely. Well, Ken Wine on Let's Hear, what a treat. Eric, thank you so much for that guest. Thank you so much for that conversation. It was awesome to be able to listen in on that. So thank you so much. That was great. So much fun. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show, and that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank... John Beltrano, our enthusiastic production assistant. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsors, the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at LuminaFoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Brown. Okay, everybody. Until next time. Let's hear it.